Good evening. Hope you had a great day. Uh, back to work today for a lot of you suckers. But uh, I'm, I'm, I don't start back. Classes don't start until next Tuesday, officially. Now I'm having to do stuff. They're, they're emailing and calling about things, but uh, it's not the same. It still, still, still feels kind of like vacation this week. So, uh, But it just makes it harder when you do go back. You know, next Tuesday when I go back, it'll have been like December the 15th or something like that. And nobody's going to feel sorry for me. But, uh, but it, 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 yeah, I know. But, it, it, you know, it just takes you a few days to get back into it. So um, my, my son, I got a message this morning. My son, was my younger son, was named the Shawnee News Star. That's the newspaper in Shawnee. Uh, male Athlete of the Week. Now, he, he, uh, I, he's a basketball player, and um, he's just a freshman, but did I tell you he's, he plays for Dale, you know, the, the 2A school. Cashin, which isn't too far from here, is like, is like their, probably their best, biggest challenge this year, but we, only, we play two sophomores and three freshmen. He's one of the freshmen, uh, but he, had, he, he, he hit seven threes in the game last Friday night, and that's what got him the, so he had 29 points. It's career high, <laughs> 13 games, but, um, but yeah, he's so, um, one of his teammates has been um, the athlete of the week twice, I think, already. He's, he's a sophomore, and he's the best player on the team. I know, uh, but uh, Levi's in the, he's a good player, though. They're, they're a good team, um, but, you know, um, that's, we're excited for him. Luke was not a very good basketball player. He was a good soccer player, and he actually ended up being All-State his senior year, soccer player, but he just never got the kind of um, attention that, and Levi, this has been true for Levi all along. He's been, you know, just one of the best players in Oklahoma, even when he's like second grade, third grade, and I know it sounds silly, but they have rankings even for, you know, fourth grade, fifth grade. Um, so he used to... You know, you could tell he wasn't real excited for his brother. But now he's really excited for it, and and like he wants to bring all his friends to the games. And uh, they were supposed to play last night at Bethel, and that's kind of a rivalry. And he had like 15 friends lined up that were going to go to the game, and they get they canceled the game because of COVID. And he was so upset that they canceled the game, so he just invited all those people to the house. <laughs> so my wife. Uh, called at some I think it was about 9 30 and she said they're killing us you know they're loud they're playing some game and they're screaming and they're loud and she said I got to go to work in the morning but I don't want to say anything so <laughs> Levi sent me a text about 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 the same time that said thanks for letting Luke bring his friends over and I thought hmm I don't think that I think that's sarcasm and I texted him back sarcasm with a question mark he never answered <laughs> so, so I haven't talked actually talked to him today, but I I found out from Angie that uh, yeah they were real loud. And Levi couldn't hear the football game last night. He couldn't even hear the game, so he just went to bed. And that's when he texted me, "Thanks for thanks for letting Luke bring his friends over." But Luke's really Luke's really uh, proud proud of his brother now. So that whole thing has shifted where uh, it used to be he was mean to Levi a lot of the time. Uh, and Levi was the one who was kind of, you know, wanted to be friends. And now Levi's 15, Luke's 20, and now Luke wants 
to be brothers. And Levi's not as excited about it. You know? So he'll ask him, you want to go to out to get something to eat? And Levi's like, nah, I don't think. Oh, come on, you don't ever do anything. <laughs> this is the b- bizarre, <laughs> the things you go through with your kids. But anyway, uh, that's, 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 uh, that's where I So you can look, you know, the playoffs will start a few weeks, and it's districts and then area and then state. So if you see Dale in the state tournament, you should come and cheer for him. Cheer for number 10. Uh, Cashin is the closest. Uh, it's straight, it's, it's straight south. It's, uh, like it's north of Oklahoma city by, you know, 25 minutes or something. Um, what's that? What's the sign? Um, there's Cashin and Crescent. Crescent's if you just keep going. So I, you're coming this way. That's about as close as they'll get to here, I think. Okay, I need to warm up tonight, so that's it. All right, if you look at your handout, and it, this will be then uh, the back of the second page. That, I think that's the one that'll say Roman numeral 2 at the top, the God who forgives. All right, that's it, God's unfailing love. So I, I want to emphasize something about God uh, and His love, and then what that means for us, and, and what a amazing reality then it becomes for us but I'm going to emphasize God's unfailing love and it's a Hebrew word chesed um, and it's hard to translate in, in, into English it's like havel that word that, for, that I said was is pht. that word's hard to capture in English chesed is really hard to capture and you'll see all kinds of translations like loving kindness, unfailing love, covenant faithfulness, abiding mercy, sometimes just mercy, sometimes just love. All those are attempts to capture this English word chesed. We're going to look at Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 and in both of these psalms about forgiveness, about repentance, at the heart of both of them is God's chesed. God's unfailing love, God's loving kindness. And sort of the outgrowth of God's loving kindness is God has a desire to forgive us. Now that's what's good for us. So what do we learn about God from these psalms of repentance? We learn something about God's unfailing love, His loving kindness towards us. And that loving kindness is relentless in its, in its desire to forgive us. And so two psalms tonight, they're, they're called penitential psalms. Uh, and that means there's actually seven of them, and they've been designated that since the Middle Ages. And uh, if you're looking for the seven, and they're, they're, a, they're a group of psalms that Christianity, the church in the Middle Ages designated and called them penitential psalms. Psalms of repentance. It's Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, which is the second one we're going to look at tonight, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, and 143. So you can see they're spread throughout the whole collection. Uh, And those are the seven uh, penitential psalms. And when I'm, when I'm thinking about both of these psalms and how they remind us about the heavy burden of sin and the barrier that it puts up between us and God and how for the one who is 
living in sin, hasn't confessed their sin, or hasn't accepted God's forgiveness for sin, how unhappy life can be. How it can rob a person of joy. How it can make you physically ill, even. And the thing that I think if if you said, what are most Americans striving for? And, and that's, that's, that would be a question that you'd have to ask of almost every individual. But when you boil it down, it seems to me, most of the decisions that most of us make, I'm talking about the career we choose, the major we choose, the car we choose to drive, the clothes we choose to wear, the food we choose to eat, the relationships we choose to be part of, overwhelmingly we make the decisions about those things based on what we believe will make us happy. I mean, that's the thing we're all looking for. And so I talk to people I have over the years who are even thinking about maybe getting a divorce. And, and you say, well, what, what's the issue? What's going on? And when, they might come up with a few things, but, you know, and, and, but it's not that the person is committed to adultery or that they're, they're not abusing them in any way. It's just sometimes they say, I'm just not happy anymore. So you're going to dissolve a marriage because you're not happy anymore? You're going you're to destroy a home and maybe children in that home because you're not happy anymore? Um, so that's, that's the thing that it seems like everybody wants is to be happy. But, but the, the, the irony of that is if you devote all your life to your own happiness, it will guarantee that you will not be happy. Selling out everything to be happy will not make you happy. It can't deliver. What will make us happy? Well, there's, you know, there's more than one way to answer that. But I'm convinced from these, these seven psalms for sure, but it, there are other ways to get at it, that the thing that we're all looking for is to have something done with our sin and the guilt that we feel for it. So the kind of happiness we're looking for that we're desiring is found in, one, acknowledging our sin, owning up to it, which is hard for human beings to do. We don't like to own up. We don't like to acknowledge. We want to blame someone else or something else. And I've, I've done this with you. you know, this comes up in, like, James, uh, in, uh, when, when James chapter 1, he says, if anyone sins, you know, you can't blame God. God doesn't sin. He doesn't tempt anyone God can't be tempted to sin he doesn't tempt anyone and you think well well who would ever blame God well the first sinner did you know when when Adam was caught dead to rights and and, and God's saying what in the world were you thinking and he said this woman so there's the first attempt to blame somebody else this woman you gave me so either you know if she were a better wife or if you had given me a better wife we wouldn't be in this mess. It's classic, not willing to acknowledge your own sin. So the start, the beginning is to just be honest enough with yourself to take responsibility and say, I did it. I just think about how many just awful situations that, that I've seen and that, that I've seen on a national level, often with politicians who are caught dead to rights, and if they would just own up to it, 
immediately. Just say, I did it. It was a bad thing. It was awful. I'm sorry I did it. I'm not, I won't do it again. Man, Americans want to, we would be more than happy to, at least 50% would, uh, to forgive them. But what, what inevitably happens? Lie, hide, cover up until there's just no possible other way. And then still maybe not fully acknowledge it. And, and you, you see it on like national level, but you see it in, in lives of people you might know that just aren't, that other people might not know, but you've seen it. People not taking responsibility. I was an interim, um, interim pastor. I started to say youth minister. No, I was interim pastor of a church in Oklahoma City years ago. Um, probably 17 years ago, something like that. And I got a call on a Saturday morning that I needed to come over and meet with the personnel committee, I think, deacons. But the youth minister uh, had been caught through, I think, emails uh, having a sexual relationship with a girl in the youth group. Yeah, yeah, nightmare for everybody in every way. He's married, had, a, had a one or two kids at the time, one for sure. And so um, I had to go over and meet with uh, the, the parents of the girl, um, the, the deacons, you know, they, the, the decision was made that he was going to be dismissed immediately. And, um, and so went through all that. All that happened in, on a Saturday. So he owned up to it. I mean, he was caught. They had the, they had the messages. Parents had gone back. That was before people, I guess, knew you could find those things. You know, if you thought you might have deleted it, but it was able to find them. And, uh, and they hadn't always deleted them. And so he owned up to it, confessed it. We felt, you know, given the situation, liked the way he responded to it, just accepting responsibility, and, but he's still dismissed. So we didn't talk to his wife. Uh, we didn't have any reason to talk to her at that point in time. But they, then the next days after that, um, they were upset. She was upset that we might have treated him unfairly. And... You know, I was just surprised she wasn't leaving him. And what became clear was he wasn't owning up to it with her. He, he was not accepting responsibility in the same way and telling her. He was blaming the girl and, the, and saying they'd never actually had any, any type of actual sexual relations, and, which was a lie. He'd completely owned up to it privately, but he was telling her something else. And she was mad at the church. And it wasn't too long after that, he was working with youth at another church in the Oklahoma City area. And as it turned out, he just hadn't, he had blamed other people and blamed the girl and not taken responsibility, and he'd been convincing in it. I've seen it on every level. So where do you find this, what, what, what we're all looking for? You got to acknowledge your sin. You've got to accept God's forgiveness, which is another thing we struggle to do sometimes. Some people, the opposite of not being willing to acknowledge it and own up to it, 
They can't let it go. Just can't let go of it. Hang on to it. You can't find happiness if you just keep dwelling on your past failures. Once you've confessed them and given them to God, you've got you to accept God's forgiveness. You've got to attune yourself to God's instructions. So acknowledge your sin, accept God's forgiveness, fix yourself, attune your eyes, your, your life to the teachings of, that God has given us in His Word, and uh, trust God's providence. But it starts with acknowledging your sin. And that's precisely what we see the psalmist doing in these penitential psalms. And what they show for us is the awful life that it is when you've, con- you've just refused to acknowledge and confess your sin. So I want you to keep all that in mind. So let's look at the big cover-up. Now, I've given it an alternative title, like I often do. Like, don't be a donkey. Is that what you're... Yeah, see, I toyed with a three-letter word there. Uh, but I was afraid that was a little edgy for you. Uh, but, I mean, if, you live on, if you're on a farm, you wouldn't even think twice about it. Um, but I had a guy at Altus tell he came up after I'd taught something about this. He came up and was talking about this ass. And, it, I mean, he was talking about a jackass, you know, an actual animal on the farm. And, uh, but not everybody's lived on a farm. <laughs> so they might, they might think I shouldn't use such a term. So I'll just say donkey. Don't be a donkey. You'll see why that's an alternative title as we get into it. So let's start. Uh, with verses 1 through 5, Psalm 32, he starts out by laying out the, the blessing of forgiveness. So he says in verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So we start with a blessed. It reminds us of Psalm 1, 1. Blessed, you remember we start, that's the blessed is the one who doesn't walk in the way of the sinners or sit in the way or lay in the way of scoffers. You, know, you, you remember it from last night. But meditates on God's word like a tree planted by the rivers. Here you, you get that same sort of opening. Blessed is the one who, but here it relates to the forgiveness of sin. And what kind of parallelism is that? Oh, come on, you're going to make a C if you don't know that for sure. Synonymous. Whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, whose sin the Lord does not count against them. So you got three different words for sin. And then IV only uses two different words in English, but it's three different Hebrew words for sin. The first one is trans- translated in the, in the uh, NIV, transgressions. So what's your translation have there? Blessed is the one who's transgressions. Most of you have transgressions? Okay. That's a term that refers to like an act of rebellion against God, an act of disloyalty. That's kind of what that first term refers to. So someone who's, who's living and, and doing acts that are rebellious towards God whose sins are covered. So here's a second word for, for sin in Hebrew. So do you have the word sin? Everybody? Okay. That's the most generic term of the three for just sin. It's, like, it's sort of like um, it means to miss the mark or to go off the, off the way or off the road, uh, contrary to God's will in that way. 
And then the third one is blessed is the one who's... Now, the NIV says sin. I'd prefer iniquity. So how many of you have sin there for the third, the third word? How many of you have iniquity? A lot of you have iniquity. I would prefer iniquity here. Whose iniquity the Lord does not count against them. Now, the, and and uh, that is the word there is a word that sort of has the idea of, um, of an act of defiance against God, a deliberate uh, act contrary to God's will, deliberate sin. They all mean sin, but there's fine nuances to each one. But the point is uh, sin, and he has three statements that they're synonymous they're just talk, you know, they're three ways of talking about sin. Then look at the word that speaks of atonement. Whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, whose iniquity the Lord does not count against them. Those three are synonymous terms. Forgiven, covered, not counted against. All those words have to do with atonement. So so do you see he's saying the same thing in three lines. Now, what's the why? Because it, one, because it's poetry, and that's what you do in poetry. You, you have lines that balance one another. You find multiple ways to say the same thing. I mean, you have a whole poem about how beautiful your wife is or about how beautiful the sunrise. Line after line, you're say, trying to say the same thing, but use different words. Synonymous parallelism is poetic. So we got three lines here that point to the, the great blessing of forgiveness. Paul quotes verse 1 in Romans 4, uh, about verse 7 and 8. He quotes this psalm. And then, and in whose spirit there is no deceit, uh, kind of is the uh, synthetic parallelism. That goes a little further. That's not a synonymous line. See, it doesn't use a word for sin, and it doesn't use a word for forgiveness. It's, it's, it's carrying the thought further. But you've got three lines there that are repeating the same idea. So now, that's the blessedness that he lays out here um, of forgiveness. Now, starting in verse 3, this is all part of the blessing of forgiveness, but he does point to the strain of unforgiveness when he says, When I kept silent. <laughs> we got another, another, the psalmist again talking about being silent. You remember Sunday morning sermon? was when he, he had a really bad attitude, and he said, I just decided I wasn't going to say anything. I was just going to muzzle my mouth, and I wasn't going to say anything to God, and I wasn't going to complain to other people. I was just going to shut up. I was just going to be silent about my suffering. But how'd that work out? He said, but when I meditated, the fire was burning within me, and finally, I was just going to blow, and so I, I opened my mouth, and I, talk, and I spoke. And you remember, that's when he talked about the fleeting nature of life. But there, his silence was his refusal to, to say how bad he felt, to be honest about how awful he, life was for him, and express that to anybody, even to God. So that's what that silence was about. This is a different kind of silence. The silence here is unconfessed sin, his refusal to acknowledge and confess his own sin. So this is a very different kind of silence, right? The Sunday morning, the silence was speaking out how bad he felt, telling God how awful, he, how angry he was. This is a refusal to confess your sin. So when I kept silent, 
My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy on me. For me, that's a poetic way to speak of feeling guilty. You could say, man, I felt guilty. Or you could say, God's hand was heavy on me. Just the weight. God just feeling the weight of your sin. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Now, come on. Nobody can understand that line better than Oklahomans. You just think back to like July, August. Oftentimes, September even. How hot and humid it can be and how it just saps your, zaps your energy. You just, you just drag in and say, man, this heat is wearing me out. All this is an expression of how he felt because he was refusing to confess his sin. Now, this could all just be a poetic way to say, I, 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 was just, I just felt awful because of my unconfessed sin. That spiritually, emotionally, it was really having uh, it's an impact on me, a negative impact on me. That's possible that that's all he means. But it's also possible he is actually physically suffering because of his unconfessed sin. That his unconfessed sin is affecting him physically, biologically. Is there a connection between sin and sickness? Absolutely there is. Now, I am not going to tell you that every sickness you have is because of some sin you've committed. I'd sound like Job's friends if I said that, and they were wrong. I don't want to be wrong. There's a lot of suffering that you might endure that has nothing to do with a specific sin you committed. You didn't do anything that like caused God to bring this judgment on you. Um. That's just not true. We know that's not true. But we do know there are some sins that do lead to, to physical consequences. Sickness, disease, death. If you get drunk tonight and go get in your car, head, head down the road, going 75 or 80 miles an hour out on the road. Is it Garriott? Is that how you say that? How you say it? Garrett? Garriott. Garriott. I see it all the time, but. Nobody had said it to me. Uh, Garrett, yeah, you, you head out 75, 80, 90 miles an hour down there drunk, and you run into a pole or a building or something else. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an excellent example of a sin that led to death. But, but it's not always, that's not the explanation always. But there is a connection. And if, if you need to hear the connection, James makes that connection. You know, James chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, he's t- talking about what to do if you're sick. Call the elders of the church. Have them anoint you with oil and pray for you. And, and he tells them that. And then suddenly he says, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Like, he jumps immediately to sin. And then he says this, Therefore... Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And it's clear he's talking about physical illness there. So he makes a a connection, uh, once again, between sin, unconfessed sin, and sickness. So I think it's very plausible that the psalmist here is referring to actual physical sickness that he's feeling because of his unconfessed sin. It was making him sick. Now, I'm not going to suggest it 
unconfessed sin will cause you to cancer or something like that. But how about stomach pain? Right? How about weight loss or weight gain? How about headaches? Um, there are all sorts of physical consequences that might come uh, because of unconfessed sin. How about insomnia? How about, how about you can't sleep at night because of guilt, because of unconfessed sin? Man, like I remember, I remember driving home the night after we dealt with that youth minister who, who it was caught with the girl in the youth group. I remember driving home that night and just feeling sick about everything that had happened and being so thankful to God that I wasn't driving home to tell my wife what I thought he was going to go home and tell his wife. And, and I, I'm just thinking about in that, like a situation like that, how was he living with that? He was lying, lying to his wife. He's living a lie. And you'd have to be living in fear that you were going to get caught. And how awful that would have to feel. And the freedom of not having anything to hide. The freedom of not having covered something up that you've got to make sure you keep your story straight. And you're not, I mean, there's freedom in saying, i got nothing to hide. Well, he's got something he's hiding, and it's making him sick. That's how I would read it. And I, I would even say things like hair loss, you know, things related to stress, insomnia. Now, you might then look at me and think, well, maybe you do have unconfessed sin. I think this is more genetic, but that's not to say I don't have sins to confess. And then five, verse 5 is the end of this blessedness of forgiveness. And uh, here's the actual acknowledgement. So he'd been silent. He wasn't confessing his sin. But verse 5, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And he uses the same three words for sin again that he did in verses 1 and 2. I acknowledge my sin. I did not cover up my sin or iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions. Same three words. And he comes back to them to say, I did acknowledge my sin. I didn't acknowledge my iniquity. I did acknowledge my transgressions. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. So he says, I did it. I mourn it. And I don't want to do it again. That's what true confession of sin looks like. I did it. I mourn it. And I don't want to do it again. And I think all those are important aspects of genuine confession of sin. It's not simply that I want my past to be wiped clean. It's that I want to be clean in the present and I don't want to commit that sin in the future. It's not just about cleaning up my past. Not true confession. And so that's the blessedness of forgiveness. And thank, thank God he's confessed his sin now. And can't you just feel the burden lifted, the weight? He might start sleeping now. His headache might go away. His, that, that burning in his gut 
He might not need uh, Rolaids or whatever he's taking all the time now. And then the promise of protection. Therefore, he's linking this with his confession of sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. And I don't think this is just generic prayer. He's talking about let all the faithful confess their sins. The whole point here is confession of sin. While you may be found. Do you sense in that just a little bit of an ominous statement? While you may be found. Why would you say that? Unless it, the psalmist didn't think it's possible if you wait too long, you might not have an opportunity to confess your sin. You know that the, the line today is the day of salvation? Well, it seems like he's saying today's the day for confession of sin. You might not have a tomorrow. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from the trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. It's like you can feel the, how light it is now. The, he, he's confessed his sin. He's received forgiveness. And now he feels God's protection all around. Songs of deliverance now encircle me. Instead of the blues, he's singing another song now. Happier song. And, and that's the power of confession of sin. We'll be elevated above the waters. We'll be surrounded by God's protection. This is what he, he sees. That you are my hiding place reminds me of Corey Ten Boone, you know, the Dutch family that was hiding um, Jews during the Holocaust and finally were discovered and she ended up in a concentration camp and survived it, but... Um, the title of her book is uh, The Hiding Place, which is a playoff of they were hiding Jews in their home, but also Psalm 119, like 114, which says that, God, you are my hiding place. And uh, here is that, that same sentiment, you are my hiding place. And then for the first time, it's been the psalmist up through seven verses, but now God speaks. So God's voice breaks into the song. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in Him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. So now there's the call to obey, and it's God who speaks now. The I is not the psalmist. The psalmist is not the one who will instruct and teach and, and counsel you with my loving eye on you. This sounds like what God would be saying. So the voice of God, I will instruct you, I will teach you, and the way you should go, do not be like the horse, and that would be the, I guess, the unbridled, unruly horse, disobedient Horses are obedient, or or mule. So he picks two animals here. So uh, if you th so why why is he why the mule? And I think it's pretty obvious. From my, the best I can, I've never owned a mule, uh, but my grandfather had a farm. Uh, he had animals, and I'm certain that he talked about how stupid and stubborn his donkey or mule was. And uh, I think that's exactly the point here. So if you want to think about like God's, God's people being the animals on a farm, 
okay? Animal farm. And God's the farmer in this little metaphor. And so God loves the animals on the farm, and he trains them, and he teaches them, not, not in a way that is, is cruel, but he's teaching them so that they will know when to be fed, so that they can be protected. If, like, you know, to you know, train your dog, if you say no, that the dog won't pick up something when you're walking them along, you know, you might think training the dog, you're being cruel to the dog because you're yanking on their collar or whatever, but you might save that dog's life because there might be something, if the dog eats it, it might kill the dog, but if you say no, it won't eat it, right? If you train your dog to do that. Now, our dogs aren't trained very well. You'd have to have the thing on the leash on them and yank them away because they wouldn't they're not my wife has spoiled them (laughs) what I tell you about blame somebody else my wife spoiled those dogs I tell her all the time we got the least disobedient or least obedient dogs they won't even come to you unless you got a treat so God loves the animals feeds the animals protects them and, and trains them so that for their own good Except then you got you always have that animal that doesn't cooperate, doesn't respond, like the mule. It's too stupid, too stubborn. So the, the farmer calls, the animals come, except the mule standing out in the field. Won't come. So he gets a bit and bridle, gets in his pickup truck. Now this is God, right? I don't know what kind of pickup truck God drives. I guess a Chevy because like a rock, uh, but whatever, whatever pickup truck God would drive, he gets in his pickup truck, drives it out there to the, to the mule, puts the bit in the mule's mouth, puts the bridle on, and then ties the bridle to the pickup truck, and then drags that mule with its, you know, its legs like this, snorting all the way into the barn. Now that's not the way he wants to deal with the mule, but you know what's going to happen and eventually that mule, that mule's going to get clobbered by hail uh, because it won't come when it's called and it doesn't do what it's supposed to do or uh, it's going to get hit by lightning or get blown away in a tornado because it doesn't do what, what the farmer has been trying to train it to do. And then maybe it tries to get in the barn, but the barn door might be shut. Don't be the mule. Isn't that a better title than the big cover-up? Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in Him, and there's our word. But the Lord's unfailing love, the Lord's loving kindness, the Lord's covenant faithfulness, uh, the Lord's abiding mercy. I'm curious what your translations have there for the word. Verse 10, but the Lord's what? Steadfast love. That's good. What else you got? Loving kindness. You got anything else? Unfailing love. No one has like mercy or abiding mercy. Mercy. Look at there's no there's no question about what the Hebrew word is. It's hesed. Well, then why are all these translations using different English words? Because this Hebrew word is really hard to capture with one English word. That, you'll find that in any translation. When you go from any language to another language, you're going to find certain words. You just don't have a word in English that really captures all that. But you have one in Hebrew, and it's chesed. H-E-S-E-D. With, and, and that H is a little more of a Although in a pandemic, you shouldn't really pronounce the gutturals. 
But there it is. So all the forgiveness and, and the protection and all that he's talking about here is rooted in God's unfailing love, God's loving kindness, God's abiding mercy. It surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. So now go to 51. Now, I, I love this one because in the title, it gives us a full historical context. We know exactly here. We, we normally don't. But for this one, we get a full description of what the situation is that causes David to... Uh, compose this particular poem the title says for the director of music a psalm of david when the prophet nathan came to him after david had committed adultery with bathsheba so you remember that second samuel 11 chapters 11 and 12 man samuel the the writer of second samuel tells this story in a very compact way i mean it could be a two and a half hour movie but he, he describes it in two pretty short chapters. And, and, and it all happens quickly. Israel's at war, but David's not on the battlefield. He's back in the palace. He's walking around up on the roof, which was common in these, these uh, dwellings, that they'd have a flat roof. He's on the flat roof. He looks over at another roof, and there's this beautiful woman there. Her name happens to be Bathsheba. She's not a Jewish woman. She's a Hittite woman, and she just happens to be married to a man named Uriah who's a warrior for Israel. He's out on the battlefield. David likes what he sees in her. He's the king, so he pretty well gets whatever he wants. So he sends for her, has her brought over, commits adultery with her. And um, she comes back to him and uh, alerts him to the fact that she is pregnant. And it's David's. Her husband's been on the battlefield. You know, this is one of those, you can run, but you can't hide. So here's what I was talking about. Just confess it right there. I mean, just have a press conference, get up on the roof, and you just say what you did. Just confess to the nation the terrible thing that you did and, and how you mourn it and how you seek, you've sought God's forgiveness and you're seeking their forgiveness. This story would have ended in a completely different way. But you know what he did? He tried to cover it up. So the the plot thickens. He sends for her husband, Uriah. Joab is his commander and and David's right-hand man. Uh, So he he sends for him, has him brought home. He's going to bring him back to, to Jerusalem and then the man will sleep with his wife that night. And then he'll send him back to the battlefield and nobody will question whose child it is. They'll think it's Uriah's. But Uriah has a lot more integrity than David. So when he brings him in to the town, the man won't go home. He won't sleep at home. He says, how can I go home and sleep with my wife? How can I go home and share, have a dinner in my home? All my fellow soldiers are out in the battlefield. Joab, my commander's out on the battlefield. I can't go home and, and, and experience all the, the things that they can't. So he sleeps on the steps of the palace with the other servants. Well, that just blows up David's plan, you know. So David's like, why won't you go home? He tells him, he says, well, stay another day. And so David gets him liquored up 
I guess he thinks this is going to, he'll say, well, you know, he was here for several days. And I know no one saw him go home, but maybe he's got, you know, this is going to help his plan in some way. But the man just won't go home. Maybe he thinks he'll just finally go home if he keeps him in town. But he stays around that day and another day and just won't go. So David has to come up with another plan. So he tells Joab, when you go back to the battlefield, I want you to put him in where the most ferocious battle is, is waging on. And once you get him there, I want all the other soldiers to pull back. He's, he's having him killed. And Joab does it. And Joab says, sends a messenger to tell David that it ha- it's done. Some other people got killed too in the battle, but, but Uriah is dead. And, and, and Joab says, you know, sometimes they don't take bad news easily, so, you know, kind of, kind of, it might, not, might be hard when you tell him. So the messenger goes back, tells David, and David says, well, don't worry about it. Those things happen in battle. Because now there's no one to say the child's not his. To say it's his, that it's not your eyes. He's dead. Dead men don't talk. So he's out of the woods. And, and you look at 2 Samuel 11. Uh, it's not until the child's already born that Nathan goes to him. So he keeps the lid on this for months. It's not like he felt bad and confessed it to anybody. He's covered it up for nine months at least. And then the prophet Nathan, by God tells him to go, you you have a talk with David, and you remember what he says to him? He says, David, I want to tell you a story. Yeah, tell me a story. This was a smart way. Now, if he just said, David, you're a lying, murdering adulterer, that might not have gone over well. So he says, let me tell you a story. What, what would you think about a man who had one lamb, a poor man who just had one lamb, and they didn't treat it like livestock, they treated it like a pet. And then you got another man, and he's got, you know, too many uh, sheep, lamb, he's got too many to count. Wealthy man. He has a guest come to his home, and of course, hospitality demands that you prepare a meal for your guest and he goes and takes that poor man's only lamb and has it slaughtered for the meal for his guest what would you think of a man like this and David's just he's getting that righteous indignation you know what a what a sorry human being that is I want to know who that is that man deserves to die he demands four times as bad as what he did to that poor man And in one of the great moments in biblical history, Nathan says, you're that man. I don't know if he said, you're that man. (laughs) You're that man. Or if he said, you're that man. And David's just busted. He he lured him in with the story and then the, the reveal. And David's got nowhere to hide. And, um, David just owns up to everything. And Nathan says, well, God's forgiven you. And in, in one of the, end of chapter 11, one of the greatest understatements in all Scripture, it says the Lord was displeased with David. You know, sounds like he, you know, he 
went out and spent too much money on a pair of jeans or something, you know. The Lord was displeased with David. I'm sure that's a, that's a gross understatement. So David owns, he owns up to it, confesses it, and Nathan says, Well, God has forgiven your, your sin. Don't worry about that. But the child that's born to Bathsheba is going to die. And um, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. And there's our word, hesed, to your loving kindness. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Now, in Hebrew, that's three words. Mercy, God, unfailing love. Just three words. Now, in English, you've got to work with it to make it smooth it out into a, a, a good statement. But it's just mercy, God, unfailing love. You could say mercy, God, mercy. Because hesed can also mean mercy. So this whole opening here is drenched in grace. The basis on which he's going to ask God's forgiveness is God's loving kindness and his grace. He's appealing to God's grace. Here's his plea for the removal of his sin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your hesed, your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So that's, that's the plea. Now, he's not confessed anything yet. He's just rooting it in God's mercy. The confession is verse, starts in verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. It's like, you got, well, God, you know all the facts, and so whatever you decide to do, I deserve it. And, of course, what God had decided to do was that child was going to die. But it's David saying, I'm busted, and I don't have any right to appeal. That line against you and you only have I've sinned, that one bothers me a little bit. Because he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had, he had lied about it. He'd murdered her husband. He'd betrayed the nation over which he ruled. So there's a lot more people involved that he'd sinned against. But in a way, in a manner of speaking, all sin is ultimately against God. So I, so I think I get what he's saying. But I don't want to let him off the hook like, well, all he did was affect his relationship with God. He messed up a number of lives, and betrayed a nation. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful at the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. Teach me, therefore, wisdom in that secret place. And like I said, I don't think this is a statement about original sin. I think it's a statement where he's saying, I'm a, I'm a sinner now, and I've been a sinner as far back as I can remember, even from my mother's womb. And then the prayer for renewal restoration starts in verse 12, or verse 7, and goes through verse 12. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Doesn't that sound like Isaiah 118? Though your sins be like scarlet, they be white as snow, white like wool. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Um, 
I think that may be an expression of God's judgment. The bones you've crushed may be a reference to the baby dying. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Now remember, we saw uh, at the end of the, the Sunday morning sermon where the man said, look away from me so I might find some joy before I die. This is different. That was, that was kind of uncourteous to God. This is, I'm a sinful man, look away. I'm hideous. And blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. God is the subject of these verbs. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. It's God who would create. It's God who would renew. Do not cast me from your presence. Restore to me the joy. Grant me a willing path. So this is a, this is a prayer of renewal and restoration. He recognizes he damaged his relationship desperately with God. And he wants God to create in him a pure heart. The line in that that really gets me is, or take your Holy Spirit from me. That God, that, that seems like one of the things he really, really fears is the, the possibility that God would remove his spirit from him. Now, what would David know about that? In 1 Chronicles 16, you remember Saul? Saul, I mean, the wheels came off Saul as king. I mean, he, he, he ended up being a really bad king. And, you know, that's sort of like the people said, we're not happy with just you, God. We th- we like to have a king like all the other nations. God said, are you sure you want a king like the other nations? Because, you know, I'm really all you need. And they said, no, we really want a king like the other nations. And God says, are you sure you want a king like the other nations? And they say, yeah, we really want a king like the other nations. And God says, well, okay, I'll give you a king like the other nations. And that's your king, Saul. And he turned out to be a real dud. I mean, you know, popularity polls, he was down in the 25 percentile for sure by the end. I mean, it was bad. And it's almost like God was saying, you wanted a king? Well, you got king like the other nations. But that guy saw, First Chronicles 16. God was so angered by his life and actions that he removed his spirit from Saul. And Saul went into a real dark funk. Just depression, it looks like, you know, dark. And, and he said, you know, I really need someone to lift my spirits when this evil spirit, this heavy spirit comes on me. I need someone to play music, joyful music. And they said, well, you know, there's this son of Jesse down the road. He, he's, a, he's a shepherd, but he's, a, he's also a good warrior, too. What Saul didn't know, Samuel already anointed, anointed him to be the next king. But Saul doesn't know that. And, and he says, he plays a mean harp. And Saul says, well, go get him. And, Saul, or, or, and David comes and plays for him. And when he does, it's so beautiful, it lifts his spirits. So he wants David to play all the time. Now, you don't think David knows what it looks like when God removes his spirit from someone? He's seen it with Saul. He says, don't do that to me. And then the promise of what he will do. 
This is kind of David's great commission here. I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. So teaching. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my God and Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Sounds like worship. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. This might be worship, but that open my mouth and declaration sounds almost like witnessing, bearing witness to what God has forgiven him and what God has restored in him. Do not delight in sacrifice, or, or, uh, or I, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise such a heart. And uh, so this is what he promises. Teaching and worshiping and witnessing and sacrifice. And, and it's not that God doesn't like sacrifices. That's, how, that's part of their whole system. But God doesn't like empty sacrifices. He doesn't like sacrifices when, when there's not a, a heart involved, when it's just going through the motions, just bringing the animal or, the, or the whatever it might be you're bringing. So he says, I don't want to bring that kind of sacrifice. I know you're not interested in me bringing sacrifices if I don't have a clean heart. So my sacrifice, he said, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. So what God's interested in is, is worship that comes from the outs, inside out. If you're just going and making sacrifices, that's just external. It's something that starts inside and works its way out. And then, last two lines, interesting. I'd say this is the prayer to rebuild the, the people, the nation. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Why would he suddenly at the end, very end turn to some concern for the restoration of the nation? Because David's sin had affected the nation. This was not just his personal sin. He had betrayed the nation and his sin had had an enormously negative impact on the nation. That's what sin does. So his prayer is to restore the people and the nation. So think about what we've just looked at here. This is an adulterer, a liar, a murderer, and God just forgave him. Nathan said, it's been forgiven. That doesn't seem just. doesn't seem like justice was done. Seems like it should have been worse. He should have endured more. Maybe God should have held out, punished him longer. But it was rooted in God's loving kindness, God's abiding mercy. What kind of God would forgive a man like David? Same God that shows loving kindness to you and me. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful tonight for your unfailing love, for your mercy that is abiding. And we thank you that because of that, you pursue us and you offer us forgiveness. Father, I pray that there's somebody here in this place tonight And you brought them here tonight. 
because there's unconfessed sin in their lives. Father, I pray they would confess that sin. Honestly. And commit to not living in that sin again. Father, if there's somebody here tonight that has confessed sin and and you've forgiven them, but they, they can't seem to get past it. They keep looking back at it and it's hindering them from all that you have for them. I pray not only that we would confess our sin, but that we would accept your forgiveness. Father, if that's what somebody needs tonight, I I pray, Father, that they would let it go. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, I'll see you tomorrow night.